Today's episode contains mention of sexual assault and mild torture. Listener discretion is advised. For these episodes, we will discuss the lives and works of lesser-known artists and or the part of well-known artists' lives people don't really talk about. No shock to anyone who's met me, like, ever, our inaugural artist is the one, the only, Artemisia Gentileschi. I'm honestly proud of myself for waiting this long, because it shows a level of restraint I did not know I was capable of. Before we begin, I should let those I have not yet had the pleasure to meet know what I'm on about. Artemisia Gentileschi is the artist whose works sparked my passion for Italian Baroque painting. Additionally, I found her story so powerful and inspiring that I wrote my acting directing thesis, a one-woman show, about her struggles in Rome. Also, I look like her. Like, a lot like her. I'll have a side-by-side in this episode's post at ameliarose.com under the Art History Awesome tab. While I was already writing this episode when the topic was suggested, I'd still like to thank Dakota Bryant for enabling me and specifically asking for this. So you can blame him. (laughs) If you have an interest in the paranormal, I recommend Dakota's podcast Encounters, a Paranormal Experience, available on iTunes. Artemisia Gentileschi was one of the first prominent publicly female artists in our current knowledge of art history. I say publicly female because there were no doubt many female artists throughout history, but they were either anonymous or their works were signed under a husband's, father's, brother's name because of the patriarchy. Her father, Orazio Gentileschi, was a successful painter in Rome with his own studio. During his career, Orazio worked in the same circles as famous artists, including Caravaggio, and was commissioned by powerful families like the Medici. While artists are traditionally referred to by last name, today we have multiple people with the same surname. From here on out, we will refer to the Gentileschis by their first names, Orazio and Artemisia. Artemisia is, unfortunately, best known not for her art, but her rape at the hands of family friend Agostino Tassi and the subsequent trial. Hired by Orazio to further tutor Artemisia in painting, Tassi managed to trap Artemisia alone in her room and force himself on her. Without getting too deep into cultural standards and legal definitions in 17th century Italy, rape was fine as long as you then married the woman you deflowered. Artemisia was forced into an engagement with her rapist, a common practice at the time. It wasn't until Tassi broke their arrangement that the Gentileskis were able to bring him to court. Rape? Not a crime. Breaking an engagement? Crime. The past was a super dope for women. In an attempt to prove his, quote, innocence, or lack of responsibility to marry her, Tassi accused Artemisia of being a whore, sleeping with multiple men before ever having sex with him, therefore releasing him from the engagement. In order to prove her innocence, Artemisia not only testified in her own trial, a woman testifying in my 17th century Rome, but agreed to take the early modern version of a lie detector test, thumbscrews. 
Thumbscrews are a torture device that pull or crush a person's fingers when it, the administrator turns a screw, usually slowly to increase and prolong the pain. It was believed at the time that one could not lie under pain of torture. Artemisia risked both her reputation and ability to paint to maintain her dignity and prove Tassi's lies. Her testimony was accepted by the court and undoubtedly supported the believability of other facts about Tassi brought to light during the trial. Aside from rape, Tassi was also accused of plotting to murder his wife that no one in Rome even knew he had and committing adultery with his sister-in-law considered incest and a punishable crime at the time. After seven months, Tassi was found guilty and exiled from Rome. In the end, Tassi's punishment was revoked and he remained in Rome as a working artist. However, I implore you not to dwell on that. Artemisia Gentileschi stood before a council of old men and declared her virtue against a man and won in the early 1600s. This is the message I hope you take away from Artemisia's trial. At this point, we need to take a short break from our artists to discuss art history methodologies, i.e. the lens through which we interpret an artist's style or a work of art's meaning. We touched on a few of these methodologies last time, feminism, Marxism, and psychoanalysis. The most basic and widespread methodology, however, is biographical. This is when you, the art historian, consider the life and significant events of an artist in the interpretation of their work. As an artist, Artemisia is known for her radical depictions of traditional subjects. Her paintings are full of strong women, both literally and metaphorically. Where most artists depicted the ideal submissive woman, even in heroic scenes, Artemisia painted women in power and control. Her female figures were painted with the same reverence traditionally reserved for male subjects. It would be no stretch of the imagination to presume that Artemisia's mature style was born out of her rape and eventual victory over her attacker. Her most famous work, Judith Beheading Holofernes, is a wall-sized masterpiece of the biblical hero Judith brutally beheading her tribe's conqueror Holofernes, a not-so-hidden portrait of Tassi himself. On the surface, this seems a satisfactory answer. However, dear listeners, we must remember that correlation does not imply causation. Artemisi was born in Rome on July 8th, 1593, or 1590, depending on your source. She was reported to show immense talent at an early age, quickly exceeding her brothers who trained with her. Instead of squashing her talent, Orazio encouraged Artemisia, allowing her the freedom not just to paint, but to paint whatever subject she pleased. Her first known masterpiece was completed when she was only 17. This painting, Susanna and the Elders, dated 1610, proves that Artemisia had a unique style and narrative point of view before her 1611 rape and trial. The story of Susanna was very popular in southern Italy during the Baroque era. A biblical story, Susanna bathed in her garden every day. Unbeknownst to her, two local old men would watch her over the garden wall. One day, they decided watching was not enough and approached her, intent on having sex with her. A pious woman and a good wife, Susanna refused. In retaliation, the men publicly accused her of committing adultery. 
Susanna asserted her innocence throughout the entire ordeal to the point that she was about to be put to death for a crime she did not commit. In the end, an angel intervened through Daniel, whose book the story appears in, and the men, not Susanna, were punished. Ipso facto, everything's great. Woo, good story, happy ending. Most artists at the time used this terrible story as an excuse to paint a nude woman. The actual facts and moral of the story were traded in for lush gardens and soft bodies. These gross old men were softened, allowing the male viewer to insert themselves into the moment without feeling guilty. Not that it really mattered to most viewers. The fact of the matter is that traditional depictions of Susanna and the elders is a romanticization of attempted assault and technically attempted murder. In order to fully create this fantasy, Susanna was typically shown nude, just about to step in her bath. She's beautiful, idealized, and totally submissive. In these paintings, Susanna is almost displaying herself for her stalkers. In fact, a number of artists have used composition to suggest that Susanna is not only aware of the voyeurs, but encouraging them. One of the best examples of this is Tintoretto's piece from 1555, which will be linked in this episode's post at ameliarose.com. Artemisia's depiction of the subject is in stark contrast to the sensual, dreamlike scenes presented by her contemporaries. Where Tintoretto's subjects are surrounded by lush greenery, Susanna in Artemisia's composition is sitting on a hard stone bench. The only plants in sight are those carved into the stonework. The men do not watch from a distance, but loom over Susanna as she contorts in disgust, a look of anguish on her face. There is no mistaking this story for what it really is. Two men attacking an innocent woman. A woman who wants nothing to do with them. A woman who is actively trying to hide her nudity from unwanted attention. A bold, new, totally unique take on the story of Susanna. Artemisia's first painting was just the beginning of a career chock full of depictions of strong, real women. She left Rome quite soon after the trial ended, moving to Florence with her new husband, Pier Antonio Steatizi, a minor artist from the area. Florence did wonders for Artemisia's career. She was hugely successful, rubbing elbows with nobles, artists, and even Galileo. She became the first woman accepted into the Academy of the Arts of Drawing and had a torrid love affair with a noble named Francesco Maria Maringi. Her husband not only knew about the affair, but kept in touch with his wife's lover throughout their liaison. This is most likely due to the fact that Stiatizi was not great with money and, like today, sleeping with a rich dude has its perks. Eventually, word got out, however, so Artemisia returned to Rome, leaving the rumors and her husband back in Florence. <laughs> there are conflicting reports of how many children Artemisia had, but we know she had, at the very least, one daughter, Prudentia, named after Artemisia's mother. Back in Rome, Artemisia continued to gain fame and success. She eventually moved on to Venice when the commissions in Rome began to wane. Her movements throughout Italy during her lifetime show a shrewd understanding of how the art market functioned at the time. Rather than force a change in her style to suit evolving tastes, she relocated to somewhere that would appreciate her talents as they were. In 1638, 28 years after she completed her first masterpiece, 
Artemisia was invited to the court of Charles I of England, where her father was working on a fresco for the royal family. While assisting her father on his work was certainly a benefit of the trip, her direct invitation from the king was much more than that. An avid art collector, Charles I focused much of his time and money as a king acquiring art. As a famously talented female artist, Artemisia's work was a treasure Charles was desperate to own. He ended up adding self-portrait as the allegory of painting to his collection, a work that certainly shows how Artemisia saw herself as both a woman and an artist. Orazio died in London in 1639, one year after Artemisia arrived. She remained in England for a few years after this, presumably to finish her own commissions. However, she had returned to Italy, settling in Naples before the Civil War broke out in 1642. There is little known about Artemisia's last few years. She may have died about 10 years after returning to Italy, although there is recent evidence that suggests she was working in Naples until the plague of 1656, which wiped out most of the Italian city. This is just a brief overview of Artemisia's life and works. I could honestly go on for hours about her, the influence she had on European art. While most of her works were attributed to her father after Artemisia's death, the effect she had on art during her lifetime and subsequently later movements is undeniable. Just because modern historians didn't quote, discover her until the 20th century, doesn't mean her works don't echo throughout European art. After Artemisia, depictions of biblical women in art evolved. More artists began to depict heroines of history as strong and capable, possessing an autonomy the passive figures of eras before lacked. I encourage everyone who's listening to take 20 minutes to look up Artemisia Gentileschi and learn more. Mary Gerard is a founder of feminist theory and art history and the biggest Artemisia scholar probably in the world. She is a great place to start. Now, I think it's only fair to warn you that this will not be the last time you hear about Artemisia Gentileschi. For those you know about her, you'll notice I barely mentioned her most famous work, Judith Beheading Holofernes. Worry not, my dears, that is a larger topic for another day. I cannot give you everything right away, after all. You can follow Art History Awesome on Twitter and Instagram, at A-R-H Awesome. You can also send an email with any art and or history related questions to arthistoryawesome at gmail.com. Finally, you can find all the art and sources mentioned in this episode at ameliarose.com. Just look for this episode's post under the Art History Awesome tab. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be great. And if you want to share this podcast with a friend, that would be, well, awesome. <laughs> Once again, my name's Amelia. Thank you for listening to Art History Awesome.